Good morning. Uh, the meeting will come to order. Welcome to the February 16th, 2023 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm uh, Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, joined by Vice Chair Catherine Stephanie and Committee Member Supervisor Connie Chan. Uh, the Committee Clerk today is Stephanie Cabrera, and uh, we want to thank the team at SFGovTV for staffing this meeting. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, thank you, Chair. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and essential uh, remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows: First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, then we will take those who are waiting on the public comment line. For those watching either channel 26, 28, 78, or 99 and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. The number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter the meeting ID 2499-452-1258, then press pound twice. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak along the curtain wall, and those on the telephone should dial star 3 to also be added to the speaker queue. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices that you may be using. As already indicated, we will take public comment from those attending in person first, then we will go to those who are on our public call-in line. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the two following ways. Email them to me, the Government Audit and Oversight Committee Clerk at Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot Cabrera, C-A-B-R-E-R-A at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written public comment via U.S. Postal Service to our office, in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of February 28th, unless otherwise stated. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call our first item. Item number one is a hearing to discuss the findings and recommendations made in the August 2022 Citywide Nonprofit Performance Audit Report entitled, The City Should More Effectively Evaluate the Impact of Services Provided by Community-Based Organizations, and requesting the City Services Auditor and City Performance Division to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter meeting ID 2499 452-1258, then press pound twice. If you have not done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been admitted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And this item is sponsored by Vice Chair Stephanie. And I want to thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie, for your leadership on this. Very much looking forward to this hearing. Um, I want to welcome and thank uh, our presenters, who I know you'll be introducing. Uh, and with that, turn it over to you to lead the hearing on this. Thank you, Chair Preston. Colleagues, I called for this hearing so that we can begin to have a meaningful dialogue on how to improve the city's contracting and oversight processes, uh, processes with our nonprofit service providers. 
As you know, San Francisco contracts with hundreds of nonprofit organizations to provide essential services to the city's most vulnerable populations to the tune of $1.4 billion annually. And we want to make sure that those taxpayer dollars are being spent wisely and that the critical services that our nonprofits deliver are being delivered with positive outcomes. You know, I've long thought that we need to do a much better job of evaluating the programs and services the city funds and whether they meet the community's needs. To this end, in August of last year, the city controller released a citywide nonprofit performance audit. In it, the controller's office called for the standardizing and streamlining um, of existing process processes, strengthening performance measurement and monitoring, and requiring a level of transparency that currently does not exist with respect to the management of these contracts. And that's something that I think is extremely important, um, the level of transparency and making sure that we have a way um, to inform the public of the money that we're spending and what we're spending it on and whether or not um, those services are being delivered. According to the audit, um, it stated that it is difficult to measure overall impact of the programs and services provided because performance measurement and program monitoring vary among city departments and most data is not shared between those departments. Monitoring our nonprofits is an opportunity for departments in the city to better understand the day-to-day -day work that nonprofits are doing and to ensure that taxpayer funds are spent appropriately to provide those intended services. Additionally, this is not just all on the nonprofits. The city needs to do a better job. We cannot overburden our nonprofits with duplicative and confusing requirements not pertinent to their mission. It takes away from their ability to provide the essential services they are contracting with the city to deliver. And I have met with many nonprofits um, over the last months, and um, the statements and the experience they've shared with me have been uh, very eye-opening and has certainly informed my work in terms of what type of legislation we are going to have to put forward um, to really make a difference here. And there's been a lot of talk and chatter um, about nonprofits, and I, I just want to say that we have amazing nonprofits in the city that are doing incredible work. And I have been um, fortunate enough to sit on a board of one of those nonprofits and yes, there have been some um, negative press, but I think we have to remember that um, what is true of one is not true of all. And um, this is an attempt to really drill down on how are we standardizing um, our perform, uh, standardizing our how we monitor our nonprofits, and how are we determining whether or not those services we're contracting for are delivered in a way that are actually making a difference. And this all plays into, of course, what you hear in the chatter, that um, people don't think we're doing a very good job or we're not spending our money wisely. And for me, ensuring that the public has faith in their government is what I have been working towards ever since I really got involved with public service. I think it's of profound importance that people think we're doing a good job here and that we're spending taxpayer dollars in a way um, that are actually making a difference. Um, at a bare minimum, we need to know the impacts of the services the city funds and when service providers are underperforming or when they are in trouble, like with Baker Places or um, UCHS, United Council of Human Services. Of course, those have been in the news, um, and I think that's contributed to a lot of um, negative feelings about what's going on here. 
Um, I also want to say when I introduced the hearing, um, I also mentioned that I submitted a drafting request for legislation um, with the city attorney's office and I have been working with the city attorney's office and the controller's office who have been incredible and nonprofit service providers um, to really uh, put forward a piece of legislation that's actually going to make a difference. And of course, we've looked at the uh, Sophie Maxwell report from 2003 and really interested in doing the hard and necessary work to, um, like I said, make a difference with this. Um, and also that some people have asked me about United Council of Human Services, and I wanna just let everyone know that that is um, a subject matter for another hearing. I've actually put a hearing request in at the board on Tuesday, and we'll be having a separate hearing on that because those issues, I think, um, are, um, very difficult and I think that we don't want to cloud that with you know what we're trying to do here and review the audit. So with that, I'd like to welcome um, Natasha Mihal. She's the uh, City Performance Director with the Controller's Office. She's going to present on the August Citywide Nonprofit Performance Audit and the December Citywide Nonprofit Monitoring and Capacity Building Program. And then following um, Natasha's um, presentation, we'll hear from Sherilyn Adams, um, Co-Chair of the Human Services Network. So Natasha, thank you for being here. of our work. So the controller's office today will be talking about uh, both the performance audit that was released last summer as well as the results of our fiscal year 22, the last fiscal year that we can report on, our annual uh, uh, nonprofit monitoring and capacity building program. So before I turn it over to them, I just wanted to reinstate and echo what Supervisor Stephanie was saying, that we're working with her office on what this legislation could be. I think the controller's office has a unique role for promoting accountability and transparency, as well as setting standards that multiple departments can use to help make things easier, both for department staff as well as nonprofits. There are many ways to go about this um, to improve performance measurement, for example. That could be anything from developing common standards that should be in contracts, uh, as well as building the capacity of department staff to monitor the contracts that they've come into agreement with. Uh, it also includes making it easier to do business with the city because that is also very complicated. The city administrators already started some work on that in the government operations recovery effort, uh, though there will be more to come over the next several years. So that's part of this umbrella of work that we are looking to expand. We already do a lot in this space, but we know that this is a really important effort. So today, right now, I'm gonna turn it over to our Director of Audits, Mark De La Rosa. Good morning, Supervisors. Uh, Chair Preston, Vice Chair Stephanie, Supervisor Chan, Mark De La Rosa. I'm the uh, Director of Audits for the Controller City Services Auditor Division. Uh, I am joined today by Amanda Kelly, uh, who will be co-presenting on the audit that we issued back in August of 2022. Uh, we also have Amanda Sobrepeña, who's joining us virtually, who will be uh, presenting our uh, PowerPoint slides along with our presentation. Um, before we begin um, on the uh, presentation, uh, just very quickly, uh, our audit contained five findings, overarching topics, with three recommendations, and the three recommendations are provided to the department. 
Um, we also, as you know, as with all of our audits, we um, adhere to the government auditing standards, uh, ensuring that we have a robust quality assurance process and that our evidence is accurate and, and complete. Uh, we also um, follow up with all of our recommendations, as you know, um, every six months from the time of issuance of our audit. Uh, so the audit that is before you today will be part of the annual report that we will be issuing on the uh, recommendation follow-up that we will be issuing um, after June 2022, uh, 2023, I mean. Um, with that, I will turn it over to Amanda Kelly, who will go through our presentation. Thank you, Mark. Um, I believe that these slides are in front of you, so I'll just work off the um, slide printouts um, for our presentation this morning. So as Mark mentioned, uh, the citywide nonprofit performance audit was issued uh, in August 2022. The audit scope included contracts with community-based organizations, or CBOs, that were active in fiscal year 17-18. This includes over 2,000 contracts that totaled $1.6 billion in funding over the contract terms. There's currently no easy way to identify and categorize program areas, so the audit team applied the National Taxonomy of Exempt Entities, or NTEE, framework at the program level to uniformly group the services CBOs provide across San Francisco. Using this methodology, we identified 16 program areas, nine of which were selected for the audit and are listed here. These nine program areas were selected due to the comparability of the services provided, as well as being funded by more than one department in our audit scope. As expected, most of the city's funding is for programs related to housing, mental health, and human services. Next slide, please. The audit objective was to evaluate the framework city departments use to measure the impact of services provided by CBOs based on departmental practices as well as leading practices in program monitoring. The audit scope included the six departments listed here, five of which are the top spending departments in the city for CBO funding. I'll note that a major funding department is the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. However, they were not selected for this audit because the department had just been created at the time of the audit scope, which again was fiscal year 1718. Although the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing was not included, the recommendations I will review in the coming slides are valuable to inform the operations of all city departments that fund CBO contracts. Next slide, please. The audit sample included 30 contracts across 13 CBOs that had active contracts with multiple scope departments. This table lists the CBOs for the sampled contracts, the total of the payments made to each CBO in fiscal year 17-18, as well as the program area each CBO was serving. For the 30 contracts sampled, the total payment amount was $42.8 million. The audit team reviewed the performance measures and reporting requirements outlined in each contract, as well as the monitoring practices of each department. We also compared these monitoring activities to leading practices in program monitoring. Additionally, we surveyed all city departments with CBO contracts in fiscal year 17-18, and 27 of them responded to our survey regarding their program monitoring activities. We also surveyed all CBOs identified by departments about the city's processes related to program monitoring and areas for improvement 
and conducted focus group with the 13 CBOs included in our sample, which are listed here. Next slide, please. The audit found that performance measures used to measure the impact of services lack consistency across departments, even when they fund the same types of programs. Additionally, reporting requirements, program monitoring guidelines and activities vary greatly by department and often lack transparency. There are opportunities for the city to standardize reporting, program monitoring, and increase sharing of performance data between departments to improve the citywide view of the impact of program areas being funded. The more detailed findings of our surveys can be found in the appendices of our publicly issued report. Next slide, please. So this graphic shows the program evaluation life cycle, which starts when an agreement begins. City departments currently measure success through performance measures established in agreements, and then evaluate performance based on various reports and monitoring activities. However, it is not always evident how or if the results of the monitoring feed back into the continued relationship between the city and CBOs, what we refer to in our report as closing the loop. Next slide, please. Based on our audit findings, the recommendations focus on three areas. Improving performance measurement through standardization, strengthening program monitoring practices through departmental collaboration, and implementing a system or process for performance data sharing and centralization. Because the recommendations apply to all city departments that fund CBOs, we directed the recommendations to the Controller's Office City Performance Division, who supports the city's nonprofit monitoring program. We will hear, hear more about that work later in the presentation. Uh, so that concludes our portion of the presentation. Mark Delarosa and I can now answer any questions you may have specifically about the audit. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Just just a few questions. Um, I don't know if my colleagues have any questions, but can you can the controller's office share more about their plans to address um, the potential vari variability in the application of monitoring standards? Like, how are you going to address that issue particularly? Supervisor, um, yes, I think the uh, the next presentation that will be uh, before you on the uh, nonprofit monitoring and capacity building will uh, provide some insight on, on that um, that matter. Okay, that, thank you for that. Um, I don't have any questions right now. Let's go to Supervisor Chan. Supervisor Chan. I'm wondering too, like, is this the right time to ask these questions or my thing my question is I want to understand a better uh, I, I want to it's just kind of technical about uh, how you define core monitoring and expanded monitoring so um, could you explain a little bit to me about you know I, I just seen the list of it kind of hey you know this is I'm just trying to understand the audit results and looking through all the nonprofits that has been listed talking about core and expanded. If you can explain uh, by definition what those two 
core monitoring and uh, expanded monitoring means? And then also, um, what does it mean when uh, it's not conformance uh, or, you know, uh, what type of finding, findings, and especially in the events that you say complete, um, what, what does that indicate? Supervisor, thank you for that question. So the audit report specifically focused on the program monitoring aspects um, and processes of departments. So activities can include actual site visits, um, desk audits, or actually just uh, reaching out to a CBO periodically. So the um, uh, focus of the current citywide performance uh, monitoring program is more of a fiscal monitoring program, which is why we wanted to focus our, our audit more specifically on the actual monitoring activities. That may also be performed outside of fiscal monitoring. The, as, as you pointed out, the results are really that it varies across departments, right? So all departments have different types of monitoring activities that they use to monitor their contracts. Um, so there isn't really a, a set way that departments can do it. They have all different types of programs which direct the types of monitoring that they use, but there, there really isn't a standard set for, for how it's done. Right, and so core monitoring is really the self-assessment of, of those nonprofits, and then, and then expanded monitoring is you as controller or city departments going for formal site visit? Actually, to, to best answer your question, uh, I will turn it over to our colleagues from City Performance uh, who will um, better answer your question. Thank you. All right. Hi, good morning, Supervisors. Uh, Wendy Lee, Controller's Office. Um, maybe I'll start with uh, taking your questions first um, and then we can see if um, some of those are addressed in the presentation that we've prepared. Um, I, so I think um, working backwards, um, Supervisor Chan, I think I heard your question is what's the difference between uh, core and expanded monitoring, is that correct? That's right. Okay. So um, core and expanded monitoring refers to um, the different types of fiscal and compliance monitoring that we do each year. Um, and I'll go a little more into the detail there. Um, but core refers to um, a focused set of um, indicators around um, fiscal and compliance standards um, that we monitor all nonprofits against. Um, and then there are what we call expanded, which is a broader set of standards, so more standards that we monitor to understand an agency's fiscal and organizational health. Um, and we make the assessment of whether a nonprofit receives core monitoring or expanded monitoring by um, through our annual risk assessment process. And that accounts for several factors. That takes into account um, their level of funding, any prior year monitoring findings from the previous monitoring cycle. Um, it takes into account any changes in terms of, um, you know, what we, are, what we call, quote unquote, um, potential risk factors or just major organizational changes, changes in leadership, you know, new funding sources. They moved, implemented a new IT system. So um, we have a risk assessment process to try to best align the type of mon fiscal and compliance monitoring that a nonprofit receives with um, just our, our uh, using a data-driven approach as best as we can. And when you say the indicator, one of the indicators is funding. And is there a threshold for the funding of uh, the nonprofit? Is it the funding threshold of overall or just to that particular contract? 
Um, that's a great question. Um, we look at their overall um, organizational. And uh, is there funding. a threshold of dollar amount? Yes. Um, so actually, I think with that, if it's um, Please, let me, sorry. No, 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 that's totally fine. Um, maybe I'm wondering if it'd be helpful just to kind of launch in our presentation. Some of them might address some of these questions, and please let me yeah, know if, if for anyone that don't. No, no problem. Why don't we go ahead and do that, okay. and you can give your presentation. I'm sure we'll have other questions. Yes, please do. Okay. I'm going to try to share my screen, so bear with me while I work through technology here. Okay. All right. Um, I'm, going, I'm sharing my screen. I think... Someone can let me know if it's not showing up. So um, just to dive in here for a little bit of context, um, for our nonprofit, um, our citywide nonprofit um, monitoring capacity building program, apologies. Pardon me, Wendy, it's still not popped up. Okay. All right. Thank you for letting me know. Is it showing up now? I know I'm having some connectivity not issues. Not yet. So the committee members have a hard copy, but hopefully we'll get one up on the screen for the public. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and, and maybe we can circulate and share. Um, we, we have shared these slides ahead of time, so I'll go ahead um, and keep trying to share on my screen here. Um, but starting with a quick program overview, so um, the Citywide Nonprofit Modern Capacity Program launched in 2005. Um, and since launching, the goals of this program are to streamline and standardize the city's nonprofit fiscal and compliance monitoring practices, um, with the goal to ensure that public funds are spent in alignment with the city's financial and administrative standards, including compliance with regulations. Um, another goal is to also support nonprofits in establishing and maintaining strong fiscal operations. And so the monitoring program's approach is designed to improve the effectiveness and the efficiency of fiscal and compliance monitoring for both nonprofits as well as city departments. Um, and then flipping over to the next slide, um, in the citywide nonprofit monitoring program, thank you, thank you very much. That's perfect, thank you so much. Um, the controller's office plays a, a coordinating and facilitating role to manage the monitoring program activities by facilitating decision-making across the 12 city departments. We create the monitoring tools, standards, and guidelines for the annual fiscal monitoring process. Um, and we evaluate the outcomes of this fiscal and compliance monitoring to generate the annual report that we're talking about here today. We also administer technical assistance um, through training and coaching services for both the city staff as well as the nonprofits themselves. Um, it's important to note that fiscal and compliance monitoring would not be possible without the close collaboration of these uh, departments here, these 12 departments um, that participate in our citywide program. Department staff are the ones who are doing the annual fiscal and compliance monitoring. They also share important context about how they're working with departments so that there is shared awareness about the uh, current state of jointly funded nonprofits. And then through our program steering committee, the city departments provide really important input into our program processes um, and the program design. Uh, next page. Thank you so much. So I think, um, Supervisor Stephanie, you mentioned this already, but in fiscal year 22, the city spent approximately $1.4 billion on services provided by nonprofits. Um, and of that, uh, not the nonprofit monitoring program includes 192 contractors, which account for 85% of citywide nonprofit spending. Um, and this hopefully gets at the question of, you know, what are the nonprofits included in this pool? 
Um, the nonprofits included in our monitoring pool are those that receive funding from one of our 12 participating departments above a specific funding threshold. So to talk a little bit about that funding threshold, it is nonprofits receiving $1 million or more from a single department or um, a, a nonprofit that received at least $200,000 um, from, from multiple uh, departments in the, in the program, but each of them need to provide at least $50,000. Um, and, and the goal here is to find efficiencies um, in the nonprofits who we are monitoring. Okay, uh, next slide, please. So looking a little more closely at the contractors in the pool um, in fiscal year 22, DPH administered the highest number of contracts uh, amongst those 192 contractors, and DPH also had the highest total amount of nonprofit funding, um, accounting for about $302 million. Next slide, please. So I'll shift a little bit next into uh, what were the results of monitoring in fiscal year 21-22. Um, taking a step back really quickly, I want to share a little bit about what the monitoring process looks like. So during Q3 and Q4 uh, every year, department monitors are conducting the fiscal compliance monitoring. Um, and I think so. And then, sorry. Um, and if there are initial findings, um, departments will notify nonprofits about those initial findings, and nonprofits then have the opportunity to respond and resolve those findings before the monitoring cycle close. So when the monitoring cycle ends, those initial findings are marked as being resolved or in conformance or not yet resolved, which is a finding not in conformance. Um, in fiscal year 22, most, con most contractors were in conformance with the fiscal and compliance standards. Um, there were 21 nonprofits that had findings at initial status, um, and several of those brought those findings in conformance um, by the end of the monitoring cycle, uh, leaving 15 nonprofits that had unresolved findings on any indicators. Um, next slide, please. Um, so when department staff are conducting the annual fiscal compliance monitoring, um, they are monitoring or they're reviewing 80 indicators across these uh, kind of these domain areas um, that you see on the slide and on the screen. Accounting and budgeting, financial statements, policy and operations, and around governance. Um, and these department monitors are reviewing these standards in order to assess the agency's overall financial and organizational health. Um, at the top of the slide, we're looking at a breakdown of the most common findings across nonprofits in fiscal year 21-22. And the most common findings were related to cost allocation procedures followed by board oversight. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, in fiscal year 22, we placed two organizations on elevated concern status and two organizations on red flag status. Um, and this was a result of monitoring activities and other events, including audit findings, that identified uh, fiscal management and organizational concerns. For agencies that are placed on elevated concern status, um, these identify contractors where um, there are administrative or financial management practices that have identified a risk in how these organizations are delivering services or doing business that pose a risk to the sustainable delivery of services. 
Um, and the goal of this is kind of an all hands on deck to bring, to increase the alignment of funding departments to come together and work with the agency to address these concerns, um, including bringing in technical assistance um, to support the agency in coming into conformance with the city's standards. Um, and then for agencies that are identified for red flag status, this identifies contractors that are at imminent risk of being able to un of being unable to perform their services as laid out in their contract or grant agreement. This can result in mandatory technical assistance or even fiscal sponsorship in order to address the financial uh, management issues that have been identified. Um, those organizations that have been identified um, as being on red flag status are less competitive or may be ineligible for new RFPs and defunding may also be an option. And for these organizations, we've, we've been working with funding departments and these agencies through the process of developing action plans, tracking progress to, um, to address the concerns and bringing in technical assistance wherever possible. Okay, next slide, please. All right. Um, and finally, in the spirit of continuous improvement, we have been working on several program improvements for this uh, current fiscal year, fiscal year 23. Um, some that I'll highlight are trying to review and update our standards for fiscal and compliance monitoring, making system updates to improve how fiscal and compliance monitoring data is captured, and increasing training and resource to better support department monitors in conducting the uh, annual um, fiscal and compliance monitoring. So I'll pause there um, and happy to take any questions. Thank you. Uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you. I want to um, focus on the red flag status and PRC and Baker places and, and um, UCHS in terms of what you just said. You said once they're on red flag status, they become less competitive for new RFPs. And I am wondering how this is brought to light because it seems that we continue to do business with both groups even though they were on red flag status and contracts seemingly continue to be approved by the board playing into the whole transparency issue so how are how is this brought to light in a way that's effective yeah thank you for your question supervisor stephanie um, i think what i'm hearing is a question about um, ongoing funding for these for these contractors is that correct well, I, if they're on red flag status and we continue to do business with them, I, I'm just wondering how, how is that being communicated? Because when you look at this October of 2022 when PRC Baker Places started to really beg for a bailout, um, it seemed to take everyone by surprise. So my point in asking the question is, with all of this monitoring in place, and I think the controllers does a good job, how does something like Baker Places happen? How, how, what, what did we miss there? Thank you for your question, Supervisor Stephanie. Um, I think to your question about you know um, continued business right and continued operations with these contractors, the the the, the decision to defund a contractor um, rests with the department um, and is accomplished through departments hold that decision as well as through the bu annual budget process. So um, so so that is something that departments decide on. 
If the controller's office is concerned with a particular department, let's say the Department of Public Health in this regard because of Baker Places, how, what steps would be taken to address concerns? And I mean, were concerns communicated in a way that were, again, effective? You know, because, you know, we were, the situation that was brought to the Board of Supervisors and you know, the transferring of patients and everything that happened should never have happened. And I'm just, I'm just trying to understand with all of these rules in place, what went wrong and why, um, whether or not the controller's office intervenes in, intervenes in a way to tell a department that they need to do better in terms of monitoring who they're contracting with. Or I, do you understand what, where I'm, what I'm getting at? Yeah. Natasha's coming up. Yes. <laughs> Natasha Mihal, Controller's Office. Yes, I understand the question. Uh, we do become involved earlier in the process through this monitoring cycle with the department. We often bring in technical assistance to have the department be able to work with that nonprofit provider to raise and address these issues, and sometimes it, it doesn't get resolved. The controller's office does not have the authority to end a contract, for example, and so that would be, you know, the what are the measures that could be taken to address this in the future, I think are something to consider. But right now it is a department that is in contract with a nonprofit. Okay. Do you see anywhere um, where we can improve upon um, the fiscal uh, monitoring of contracts in terms of notifying the Board of Supervisors when something goes wrong, or when something is, you're alerted to something and someone's on red flag status or elevated concern status. What could be done to communicate that information to the Board so when we have a contract in front of us, we know that this, because it seems like there was information missing in a lot of the approval of the contracts that came before us. Correct. I think that's something for us to consider to where in the process that we would be able to bring in, not only be able to, but want to and build in bringing items to the board before you are hearing um, about something that is in such an advanced state of concern. So we don't have the exact answer. I think we would have to do some collaboration with departments um, and with our nonprofits to try to figure out what that exact step would be. Okay, and you know, I, I read through the um, the report that where the slides came from, and in terms of, and what we've talked about in terms of having someone at the city to coach the nonprofits when they get into a, um, dire straits <laughs> regarding um, some of these attorney general requirements that have been reported, and I'm just wondering um, with regard to what's been reported about all these nonprofits that don't have. Um, that haven't filed the correct paperwork with the Attorney General's office, whether or not the coaching that's included, um, the capacity building, um, whether or not that is something that you've done before or you plan on doing now because of what's come to light. And if you could also shed light on that issue, because I know there were some very good nonprofits that were, t were kind of taken by surprise by this requirement, or there was paperwork in at the Attorney General's office that um, had not yet been processed. So I think we need to shed light on that issue. 
Um, Wendy Lee, Controller's Office. I'll take your first question, Supervisor Stephanie, which is, um, I think I'm hearing is, what sort of support are we providing up to nonprofits who have been identified through the kind of uh, through the state AG nonprofit status uh, kind of question that's come up. Um, so yes, we ha we have reached out to those nonprofits, um, and through our existing capacity building consultants, we are offering capacity building support, um, you know, for those nonprofits to help them with resolving their nonprofit status. So that's the resource that we've set up. Um, we already have available, and we're leveraging those capacity building dollars to help nonprofits in addressing that. So um, because nonprofits have varying reasons for why they're on that list, um, they can work with our capacity building consultants to um, to talk through those and identify what the next steps are for resolving. Okay. Nothing else on that? I'll, I'll stop for now. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was gonna, I'm happy to, to defer and wait till you, okay, I just had some follow-up on the issues you were just raising, so I, I'm I'm curious. Um, just back to the issue around um, Supervisor Stephanie was was asking about the the red flag status and just kind of how that how that um, plays out. I just wanted to dive understand a little better how currently, regardless of what improvements could be made, but how that information. It sounds like there's some engagement with the department that will be notified by the controller's office that this nonprofit's on red flag status. Is it, is it then just kind of left to the department? Because then the department is running a bunch of RFP processes, has their panels and so forth. Like how, do, is there a process in place for that information to actually get to those making decisions around contracts? Or is it just left up to the department to figure out how to navigate that. Thank you for that question. Um, so with the red flag status, we do notify um, all the funding departments that an agency is on, on, on red flag status or elevated concern. And that does include um, all, includes the department heads in that notification, as well as um, department contracting staff. Right, I think my question is beyond that, and I don't know if the, I mean, is, is that the extent of our process, or is there some kind of uniform process among our departments, or is it left up to individual departments to figure out what they do with that information? Hi, uh, Laura Marshall with the Controller's Office. Um, I've also been involved in the monitoring program in the past, so I'll speak to some of the um, procedures we've set up with departments around this sort of corrective action policy that we established. When a, uh, the monitoring process is our key tool for identifying nonprofits that are in or out of conformance with certain standards, and that is an iterative process throughout the year, as Wendy described, where we're identifying nonprofits that might be struggling in some way. So that is happening throughout the year. There is often uh, work happening either from a capacity building angle or a department coordination with us as a, a key coordinating um, support for departments throughout the year, not just at the end once we've identified they haven't meet, met standards or sort of in a particular um, status. So those meetings are ongoing where we're convening the, the departments that are funding and working with those nonprofits to, to troubleshoot to say, 
what's going on, what are the issues you're seeing, how can we support to try to intervene sooner. When it gets to the stage where we're actually issuing a report where we're saying that someone is on red flag status, um, we have already been working pretty consistently for quite some time with that with the departments that fund them and the nonprofit usually um, in, in some way. Um, PRC is an, is an example. We had been initiating work with them for months with, with their joint funders as well um, to try to address those issues sooner. Once it's ri risen to that level of us issuing that report and notifying departments at the red flag status, um, there is, uh, that work is, is still going on. We haven't stopped the uh, convening, the, uh, the work with the departments, the work with the nonprofits. It's sort of a continuous state. It has started before the status and it continues after. Departments, we say that it has a risk to city funding in our corrective action policy. Um, this is a, departments have the um, sort of the oversight of their own contracting procedures, and many departments have included in their solicitation templates and in some of their contracting rules internally um, that they should be aware of and look for red flag status, and it may limit someone's competitive advantage in a solicitation. For example, they may get either docked points or they may not meet MQs or, or other things in their solicitation. So it does limit a nonprofit that is on that status, their ability to apply for new funding for some departments if they have explicitly included that in their um, in their contracting language in their solicitation processes. Um, it doesn't ex completely exclude them from receiving funding because they may be able to resolve with our support and be delivering very essential services, and we want to work towards their sustainability. So we are not creating rules necessarily that are hard and fast. We are just creating um, procedures to work with and support both the departments and the nonprofits to understand and, and work within these, um, these standards. Um, and then it will be ultimately, as Natasha said, uh, the department's choice whether or not to fund that organization if they continue to not meet those standards. Got it. Thank you. And so, so it sounds to me, and I don't, I, I'm curious if I'm getting this right. I mean, it sounds it sounds like everyone involved in the ongoing decisions around contracting and the department know whether they're on elevated status and red flags. I mean, you're because you're, you're talking to a board of supervisors that's coming off a period of time where we're kind of shocked that some of these flags weren't raised for the board. And I, I guess what I'm sort of probing a little is whether that's the same in the departments or not? Like in other words, do like I said, do the the, the folks making a decision on a new contract, uh, there is there? It sounds like everyone is well aware of this at the department level. But I, I guess I, I'm is is that right, or do we need to have some more standardized way as part of the the legislation that that the Stephanie is working on something more clear about how the information goes from the controller's office to not just the department heads, but to decision makers on contracts. I would, I would affirm that it, the departments that are actively doing business with the nonprofits that are struggling are well aware throughout, and they are often the ones raising the issues to the controller's office as needing to be resolved. Um, and. I think that that question as was raised earlier about how to escalate that to um, the board is still an open question of sort of when that happens. We have typically not had a lot of need to in the far past. There have been some cases where something has risen up, um, but this is one of the first times that we've really escalated to red flag status in our several years history. I do want to call out 
COVID as a con consideration in some of this, um, you know, the, the years of destabilization as well as also some of our challenges in the government of doing doing oversight during those years and sort of doing some of that convening and, and group, um, group work with those nonprofits during those years when we were all sort of scattered. And so this has led to some, maybe some additional escalation than we might have seen in the past. Thank you. And, and uh, another question on this, on the monitoring pool, um, can you, you, you laid out the, the triggers basically for, for nonprofits ending up in that monitoring pool. And I just wanted to get clear, is that, is that one-time grants? Is that ongoing? Is that a, a multiple year average? Uh, especially just given how unusual the last uh, few years to the last point around COVID. Uh, obviously we've had a lot of sort of sudden contracting activity. So I'm just curious if it's like once you hit that trigger on one contract, now you're in the monitoring pool going forward or if that's assessed annually or based on some kind of uh, multi-year average. Yeah, thank you for that question. We assess this on an annual basis. So um, we, we are doing this on an annual, we have an annual risk assessment and that informs um, how we approach monitoring for each annual cycle thereafter. So if someone gets like a $1.5 million contract bringing them into the, the monitoring pool, but it's just for a couple years and then they're back down to 500K or something that doesn't trip the wire, they're then for that year, they are not in the monitoring pool? Yes, I'm confirming okay. that, yes. If, they, if their, um, their total funding dollars changes, uh, we take that into account. So if they no longer meet that threshold, um, then they fall out of that monitoring pool. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, and, and then a question on the, just diving into the compliance and non-compliance a little and um, some discussion around, just now around, around impacts of COVID. I'm, I'm curious more broadly if you can comment on um, your assessment of the reasons for non-compliance. I think there's a whole range of things we hear about, right? I mean, sometimes it could be just incompetent oversight and management of, of an organization. It could be some emergency situations that occur in COVID. Uh, and it could be in some cases, and I think this is especially true for some smaller nonprofits, where they don't have the funding, the infrastructure funding that they need to be carrying out the, um, the compliance and reporting functions that we expect of them. Um, so I'm just wondering if you've you'd either looked more systematically at the reasons for non-compliance or just anecdotally, uh, just what your sense is of, of what the major uh, reasons for non-compliance are. And in particular, like how many of, how much of this is or is not related to pandemic and, and staffing and other issues, or if these are more longer term issues? Um, thank you for that question. Um, I think through our, our fiscal and compliance monitoring process, um, I think in looking at the standards, that's not something we've, we don't have the data to look at that thoroughly. Um, I think, you know, all the factors that you've raised can definitely contribute to that. Um, to non-compliance, um, things like staffing, staff turnover, uh, we've heard anecdotally. Um, so turnover in staff being able to understand how to do, um, how to manage the financial functions um, to meet the standards. Um, we've, you know, certainly impacts of COVID have been one. Being able to staff up um, really affects us too. Um,
Um, I will note that we have typically had very high uh, levels of conformance with the monitoring standards year over year in the past. Um, and that's uh, the areas, Wendy mentioned staff turnover, a sort of capacity to perform on some of these functions is an issue, but we primarily see that a majority, a vast majority of nonprofits are able to meet the standards year over year and maintain good good components. I would um, also, I know that you're going to be talking to some nonprofit providers today in your hearing, so they may be more of a, a, a group to talk to about sort of what it takes to meet some of these standards. Um, so I just refer you to them because they're the experts. <laughs> Thank you. And then just specifically to, to some of the compliance requirements that, uh, you know, for those of us who have run nonprofits are like the the no-brainer stuff, right? Like you got to file your taxes, you got to file with the attorney general, you know, that basic checklist. It, it, it was pretty alarming to me that the number of, uh, not, you know, most are in compliance, but the number that hadn't met some of those basic things. I'm trying to understand how that gets through, like whose job it is to check that box. Like I would assume that when a nonprofit applies, they're checking a box saying they're in compliance with all, with all state laws, which would include that filing, right? It takes about three seconds to go online and check if that's true or not. So I would assume also that a department or a panel making a selection would maybe do that or the control, like wh whose job is it to, so A, am I right that the nonprofit has to represent affirmatively that they're in compliance with those things, but then is whose job is it on the city side, if anyone's, to to check that those basics have been complied with? There, the city has a lot of various requirements for the uh, organizations that we do business with um, to comply with, and there are a variety of ways that we manage their compliance. Um, I think. This group may have heard from the city administrator at, at times about some of it, I'm not sure, um, but they are working on sort of some of these supplier-based requirements that we have as a city and trying to organize some of um, how we how we are actually streamlining what is required. There's things like the um, healthcare accountability ordinance or other things, there's forms that must get submitted, and so some of those have very clear workflows and it's on a contract by contract basis. Other items have been, um, you know, are required, but maybe there isn't as much clarity in sort of what the, what the um, way it gets uh, documented is. Um, yeah. And so- Let me, let, sorry, let me, let me just interrupt you and narrow it. Cause I, I'm, you know, there's a few things that just to like exist and transact business an entity has to do, right? Like filing with the attorney general, the, the registry of charitable, trusts or whatever it's called, you know, filing your 990s, other things that like as an entity give you the ability to, to exist and, and enter into contracts. That, I mean, I get that there's a bunch of other things around compliance and, and, and a lot of complicated requirements, but those, those more core basic functions, which I think were the subject of, uh, you know, some, some recent reports of, of, uh, of nonprofits that hadn't met that, and I'm just I'm trying to understand how that gets through. And just specifically, does the does the nonprofit have to check a box in the application that they've complied with those things? And does is there any requirement on either either the controller's office or the department just to check that those very basic things are in order? 
I think that there are, so for the Attorney General um, Charity Registry, we have issued the policy uh, around how that should be verified in the future. Um, I think that there are um, some, there were existing practices for some of these elements, but they weren't formalized in policy. And so this formalizes this, um, this particular compliance requirement. Um, I think the other elements are sort of having a business license. You know, we, we check in that those, on those uh, types of things. This one didn't have a formal policy about how it is checked. So we have created that, um, that uh, puts it on the departments to verify. Um, we are also very concerned with not making too many more checkboxes because even as one is uh, very easy to complete, when there are 80, it becomes a very burdensome process. So we're trying to figure out how to do these types of compliance checks in a way that is less burdensome both to the, the entities we're trying to do business with as well as the city who's trying to verify those things. And so some of them may make better sense to do annually, for example, through the monitoring process or through a, a post-audit process of some sort. Some of them may make sense to do um, sort of at the supplier level over the city versus at a contract by contract level. I think we do a lot of different contracting with various nonprofits and like across departments and multiple contracts within. And so when we put things on a contract basis, it, it creates even more burden. So I think finding the right level of uh, the right type of approach that is the right level of effort for a given compliance requirement, whether it's supplier based or contract based or um, you know, post audit, for example, um, is part of our process as we move through some streamlining efforts, some contracting um, uh, process improvements. Um, and we will also continue to identify where there are gaps in our understanding of something being required or not being under required, similar to the AG um, policy where we identified that there was a gap and we created a policy. Thank you. I guess I'd just share my two cents that I think for some really basic things it would be helpful to the nonprofits as well to, to have those check boxes. I, I think, you know, I, there, it's the rarest case where someone would be not filing with the Attorney General Registry to evade that. People just like they're running a nonprofit, they're trying to pay their staff, they don't have enough you know, staff and they have turnover is just the last thing anyone thinks about. Uh, if in order to get your funding and do your application, there's a box saying, are you current with your filing at the reg? I, I, instead of dealing, it seems like more sensible to me to just have that be part of our standard process. It's going to remind folks when they're applying to do that. It takes about a minute to go online and file that thing. Um, and so, I understand sometimes you can handle it through auditing, through monitoring, all that, but this, the, you know, those very basic requirements, I, I would just, my suggestion would be we also handle those on the applicant end. To be, yeah. um, just to kind of verify that with our, we do have it, um, it will be included in the terms and conditions for any contract. So essentially they are by signing the contract, verifying that they will be in and maintain their compliance with that, um, with that registry through the term of their contract. So. Um, we're kind of doing it, which is maybe a checkbox of sorts. <laughs> Thank you, uh, uh, Supervisor Chen. Thank you, Chair Preston. I uh, just wanted to go back to sort of what 
my question, a line, a line of my question. I thank you so much for, you know, talking about the funding threshold and, and help me better understand that. But I still wanted to go back into the definition of expanded and core monitoring and, you know, and, and just help me better understand the, the finding monitoring results by definition, what happened when it's not complete, what happened when it's not conformance, and what happened when it is, like, so what do these what do these indicators before we even get to the red flag? My assumption is by having these indicators, it kind of tells us whether where these uh, each nonprofits actually are at. So can you just walk us through a little bit what each uh, sort of term really indicate for us? And like when we're looking at these uh, this list. At least for me, when I'm coming through, I'm like, well, some of them are still, we're approving contract <laughs> just as of yesterday. So are we so, supposed to be in a space of how, how do we resolve that? Um, and, you know, when we do ask city departments, sometimes they're sure, sometimes they're uncertain, and then sometimes, you know, so just how do we, how do we reconcile between what it's listed here and what it's being told by us? Thank you for your question, Supervisor Chan. Um, so I think I'll try to take your questions um, one at a time. So I think your question first was core and expanded monitoring, um, kind of, and, and how does that link to findings? So um, again, going backwards, we in our annual risk assessment process, uh, we take very, several factors into consideration to assign um, whether a nonprofit receives core or expanded monitoring. Um, departments conduct that the fiscal the annual fiscal and compliance monitor against those set of standards. So there's a set of we have a standard monitoring form that lists you know here are if you're receiving a core monitoring you know you need to review all these um, you know indicators around things like you know board oversight, audited financial statements, payroll, you know um, those categories. So um, so the nonprofits receiving core monitoring has you know like one through 10, and that's not the number, but like one to 10 you know, standards that need to be monitored. And then the ones that are assigned to receive expanded monitoring have to do, have are monitored for all those core standards plus some more. Um, and the, the nonprofits that are receiving expanded monitoring, it is a more, it is review against more standards. So more documents are requested um, and they're evaluated against more standards. Um, and, and then the rationale for assigning nonprofits to expanded monitoring is we need to make sure that we make sure that not all nonprofits receive an expanded monitoring every X number of years, um, but we take into account what were the prior findings were to establish kind of the risk level um, of should they, can they, do they need to receive just the core standards versus do they need a more expansive expanded monitoring? What is the X year? Sorry? You said. Oh, yes. Yes, um, every th every three years. Okay. Yeah. And what are the findings, uh, monitoring results indicate? Yes. So if um, an organization has a finding, that means that um, that the organization did not meet a, a standard that is on our standard monitoring form. So they they didn't they were not in compliance with um, any of those indicators. And so if you have a findings in conformance, what does that mean? Yes. Great question. Thank you for that, Supervisor Chan. So, um, when there is a finding, uh, we departments notify the nonprofit that there is a finding, and the nonprofits have a chance to to respond and resolve that finding. So, for instance, in the initial monitoring, there may be a finding around, say, board minutes. Um, they might have been missing that document, or you know, um, did they file this, or you know, they're. Um, 
you know, did, they didn't provide it in the initial monitoring request for the request for documents. So there's an opportunity for, for some of these findings where nonprofits can, they resolve it, and then, and then if they are, and departments receive that request of documentation, review it, and then can confirm that that meets the standards, then it is a finding in conformance. They have, there was a finding at initial status, but they have since resolved it within the timing of the monitoring cycle. And nonconformance? Yes. So findings not in conformance represents those findings where the nonprofit either did not submit a response to resolve it, or it can be cases where some of these findings, you know, are need to be addressed kind of beyond the monitoring cycle. Um, for instance, you know, um, if there's a nonprofit that has a delayed um, audit, right? So it's not complete, but it is in progress. So that's a finding not in conformance. They didn't meet that standard. It's documented. They are working towards it. So that's an example of finding not in conformance. What happened when it's not complete? When, can you, can you help clarify when, uh, what is not, incom not complete? I don't know. It just says here said not complete. Uh, yes. Um, in, in, I think you're referring to the, to the findings where it says not complete. Um, as we were returning from COVID, there were a handful of I organizations um, where monitoring was not completed, and that's what that stand represents. So when, when an organization is being monitored and the monitor results is findings in nonconformance, what do you do when their contract is expiring or that they have contract that's actually coming up? and that you're expecting this body to approve, or the city department's expecting this body to approve an, ex, uh, an uh, amended contract or extended contract. So what would your recommendation be you know, in this situation uh, for city departments and for this regulatory body and trying to overs have oversight of these contracts when a nonprofit that is providing critical city services being actually you know, monitor and that is, uh, has actually finding in nonconformance. Because of that, a right red flag here, right? But then we also don't want to let it go and rubber stamp anything, and then so then they become red flag status. Yeah, thank you for your question, Supervisor Chan. Um, I think I'm hearing the question is, yeah, how, how do the findings factor into departments' contracting decisions? Um, so we, we published, this is an annual monitoring um, process and we publish the findings um, at the end of every year. Um, right now it's, it's a public report um, and so for departments they are also aware of these findings um, and it, it is up to departments to take this take these findings into account when uh, making the sort of contracting decisions. Sure but then if a city department ignores it and still present it to the board what should the board do? I mean, I, I, that's essentially really what happened to us, I, I want to say, right, back to Supervisor Stephanie's and Vice Chair, sorry, uh, Stephanie's uh, point about Baker's Place and how it actually came to the board was already at the red flag status. And it was way too late for the board to, to really even be able to go back and say, well, how did we get here? And then we're like, oh, the only runway that we had it was very dramatic, uh, if I, as I recall. It's that if we don't extend it, then people are going to be left out and the service is going to come to an end. We have a very short six months, you know, runway. And even after that six months, we knew that, that within that six months only bought us time to end the contract with them and that we need to actually um, 
find other places and find other beds and services for, for, for those in need of that services. So help me understand. So um, stepping in, just to briefly go back to what I was sharing before about our citywide corrective action policy. When the, mon the monitoring is, is monitoring, right? It's meant to kind of be a review and assessment um, annually throughout um, uh, over time and identify trends if there are any. Um, when a nonprofit has a finding or two, may have some gaps in um, either some financial documentation that they're doing or some other compliance requirements that they may not have been able to resolve during the monitoring, we do report on it. But as part of this, we have um, a process for escalation that does clarify what types of findings should matter more, I guess we'd say. So we have some that have been identified as very high risk issues, um, where when we see those, we should be more concerned. Some of the compliance documentation, you know, we, it matters, they should get on that, but it should not necessarily result in defunding that nonprofit, right? There are some things that we're monitoring that are um, part of a, you know, that, that may fall through the cracks here and there, but most of the time nonprofits get that finding and resolve on it. And it may not happen during our cycle, but they are able to address that, you know, over time. We use our corrective action policy to do a year over year look. These standards that should matter more, we have identified that if we are seeing that a nonprofit is in repeated nonconformance with those things, those issues, that they are, that there are more structural concerns at play usually if they're not able to resolve on some very high risk um, elements of financial management. We want to see that year over year. Some of them we have said are so high risk that it's one year. If we see one year out of conformance with certain standards like uh, going concern in their audit, um, we are going to elevate them within that cycle. That is a one year um, issue. Um, other things if we're seeing that we gave you this information, we maybe gave you technical assistance, and you're continuing not to come into conformance, that second year we're going to be flagging them for elevated concerns. So some things take, we are giving a little bit more time, but if we're seeing repeated patterns, that is when we start to escalate. But so not all things yeah. are rising to the level of escalation in, in a single year. Sure. But that is the, the, the term, again, repeatedly, is what as a threshold, as a time period, because in the PCR and the Baker's Place, five years, while well over five years' time, to actually came to the board at that moment and say, we can no longer, because they were supposed to have a merger, they didn't go for a merger, and you know it was a five years' time, and, and, and before they actually finally came to the board and we say, just no more, this, this is not sustainable. And so, help me understand the repeated threshold. And, and then again, though, like you actually put in place a saying, a risk management. You have this funding, you already say, hey, you know, do you have like a irregular pattern in terms of reorg and your leadership or in your board reporting? I mean, right, like you, you actually have a whole thing that sort of breaking down the categories, your, your health, financial health and, and all that. So what is the repeated threshold? We can send a link to the corrective action policy. I don't have it offhand, um, but it's laid out in that policy, which is on our website, um, to say which of the um, standards and how 
how they um, are applied year over year um, and which ones rise to the level of, of being referred for elevated concern um, versus, uh, versus not. The, um, some of these issues, I think, are also in the department space, so sort of yeah. better referred to the department to say they are the ones who did the monitoring. They are also right. the ones who would have been assessing those standards and whether or not that nonprofit met the standards at a given time and the work that they did to try to bring them into conformance over those years. So we'd also want to, um, you know, we can report on um, sort of what the results yeah. of that were in terms of the monitoring, but not in terms of the other work the department was doing. And then I, can you help me uh, understand about training in general, right? So in, uh, in training and capacity, and is that training provided by, like who provide that training to the nonprofit? Once you identify that they need training, they need the support for capacity building, so at which, who, who provides it, at what level, and then I'm just kind of curious, like what kind of training do we actually provide, and then and capacity support, building support that we actually provide, and then at which point we say this is not, this is actually beyond training and beyond capacity building. This this has sort of crossed a line, so to speak, and in some case, right, that that it, it, to a level where the controller actually has to say we're turning over to for criminal investigation. So so I'm I'm trying to understand. <laughs> At which point do you determine that, and, and who determined that in terms of training, the level of training and capacity building? Um, thank you for your question, Supervisor Chan. I can answer the first part of uh, that question, which is, um, you know, who is providing these uh, training capacity building services? So, through our citywide nonprofit monitoring program, we, you know, that part of our name is the monitoring, which is what we're talking about here today, as well as the capacity building. So, on the capacity building side, um, we provide those we. Are in, we intend to um, provide coaching and training for both city staff as well as for nonprofits, and that takes the form of um, we have an annual spring nonprofit training series that we open up to all nonprofits, um, and that's intended to kind of be a broad scale, larger scale to reach more nonprofits um, to touch on some of these key areas like budgeting, you know, working through COVID, um, things like that. Um, and I think to I think your point um, the about working with individual nonprofits, that happens through our individualized tailored coaching. Um, so we have established uh, an RFQ uh, pool of pre-qualified vendors um, that can provide these cap capacity building services. And we currently are in contract with two uh, consultants who we, we, we pull in, um, and they are nonprofit financial management experts um, in the field to work directly with nonprofits. Um, and so that, that allows them to be more tailored one-on-one -on -one to try to meet the needs of those nonprofits. Um, in terms of the level of engagement, sometimes that can be lighter touch, um, you know, uh, for instance, you know, or it can be, you know, hey, like here are some best practices for um, board, gov board governance, board oversight. They can also be more intensive, like doing a um, in-depth cash flow analysis, working with them, you know, to think about what, what are the, um, what, what would it take to restructure contracts. Um, so it can range, um, and, and we identify that with um, starting with a conversation with our consultants as well as the nonprofits and funding departments to figure out um, kind of what the level of need is. Um, so um, 
hopefully that help answers the question about how we um, match the capacity building with nonprofits' needs. It does, and, and I think that's, if I may say, like I'm just looking at wide range of nonprofit in terms of their capacity. You can actually see the most successful one, and they're the larger ones that actually have a dedicated CFO, and then they really have consistent training uh, for their own staff because they separately from the CFO who's managing the money, like everybody is trained and to understand the reporting so they keep their logs and documents and programming and their services like in a well document documented, you know, um, log that they can then turn over and allowing the audit to be performed efficiently. Smaller nonprofit sometimes don't even have a staffing to perform for the direct services, which is, I, I think that what also what I'm trying to ask and, and trying to have a better understanding is that to make sure that we serve the city equitably, but also uh, serving the nonprofit equitably, that to, to build their capacity, meaning that, you know, there are a niche uh, nonprofit that could be small, and they don't really, quote unquote, have the capacity to really meet and understand all these requirements because it's not just the, the, the CFO that they have or the accountant or the consultant that they have. They also actually have to train their staff to be able to provide those documentation for the direct services they provide for, for the documents to, to come. And so that my, I, then my question also is then how do we treat small size uh, nonprofit and the large nonprofit like equitably, like, and to make sure that there is a capacity building for those who can provide a service, but they're just smaller and they, they seem to be having a hard time to, to match up. Thank you for your question, Supervisor Chan. Um, that's something definitely, you know, we are gonna, we continue to, to think about um, as far as how we deliver our capacity building services. Um, right now, our process is that we, um, we work with departments to identify nonprofits that could, you know, might benefit from capacity building, um, whether it's through this annual monitoring process where there may be findings that indicate um, kind of these capacity gaps um, or just opportunities to better support the nonprofit, as well as throughout the year. So this is, again, throughout the year, um, departments that are the ones working closest and have most insight into what is happening with these nonprofits will reach out to us and, and let us know, hey, I'm working with this nonprofit X. Um, it seems like they're maybe struggling in this area. How do we engage with them? So um, we, we we, we do work closely with non, with departments to flag or identify nonprofits that we can bring in to receive capacity building regardless of the size of the organization. I think um, it's just a thought about streamlining, when we talk about streamlining and, and standardizing uh, sort of the practice when we contract with nonprofit, I think perhaps that per part of it in terms of capacity building is really providing that capacity of streamlining, it's sort of like helping these smaller nonprofits and however threshold that you that the controller seems to deem appropriate when you evaluate contract dollars all across, because right now you have this uh, $50,000 joint funded, jointly funded, or $200,000 jointly funded, perhaps that is gonna be continuing your threshold for some of these nonprofit, anything that's below, that they somehow join the pool of administrative reporting trainings and monitoring and, and reporting back. Just a thought, I know that the obviously different city departments, but especially the ones that do function within the same city departments and provide that services should be a consideration. Thank you so much. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. And just a 
quick uh, question or two, and then I know Supervisor Stephanie has additional questions as well as another presenter. Um, um, the reference in here to nonprofits, I just wanted to clarify, does that include 501c4s in, in all this data, the, the, the total contracts to uh, total amounts uh, of contracts with nonprofits and all the other references here, or are we just talking about 501c3s? Thank you, thank you, Supervisor Preston, for that question. Um, I don't believe we we have any 501c34s, but we can check and get back to you on that. Great, thank you very much. And then just one other comment, if you want to comment on it, that's fine. But I, I just when I'm when I'm hearing about the ongoing the capacity building side of this and some of the how that's being described uh, in terms of everything from the annual monitoring trainings and meeting with uh, these nonprofits. I, I, I just want to get back to, there, there, are, there are different causes for noncompliance as I was asking about before, right? I want to make sure, for, for some, there may be a lack of oversight and other issues, right? For some nonprofits though, like additional trainings and monitoring all that may not address some underlying issues. Like the controller's office looked, I think it was a year ago, you did a you know, nonprofit wage analysis, for example, right, in May of 2022. Um, you know, like the, the turnover, the fact that you're, a lot of folks who are doing the administration, right, is turn, turning over, it is linked. It's, it's not just like another training is going to resolve the issue at some nonprofits, some that are well run, being conscientious, but may not be in full compliance or may have issues. Um, the staff turnover, the wage disparities, right, can drive that. So I, I guess I just want, I'm, maybe it is a question as well as a comment. The comment is I just want to make sure that those conversations are connected. Right, that when the controller's office puts out some, you know, I think the May 2022 report really very explicitly shows what, what all of us in this building know, right? Which is that while some people look and have sticker shock that $1.6 billion of city funds goes to contracts, the reality is if those services were provided by the city, it would be a lot more than $1.6 billion, and that part of the reason it's so much less is that the nonprofit sector, um, despite lots of, you know, politicized talk about nonprofit industrial complex and, you know, one or two highly paid EDs, the reality is, you know, most folks working in the nonprofit sector in San Francisco are barely above being either homeless or marginally housed themselves and barely surviving, right? So I, I just, I, I think, I, is, is that being connected? When you talk about capacity building and making sure these nonprofits, especially some of these smaller ones, have the capacity to really fulfill their obligations under these agreements and so forth, is that a separate discussion from these sort of wage compensation sort of struggles of the nonprofit sector? or, and as we're looking at policies, or are these uh, being discussed together and considered together? Thank you for that question, and thank you for referencing our May report. Um, we are, uh, the Controller's Office has sort of a portfolio of 
work that we do on nonprofit policy issues with a lens of both sustainability and accountability and trying to marry those um, as well as work we're doing to kind of streamline and, and um, uh, improve our contracting processes. Uh, so the work that we did around wages uh, last spring, we are continuing to work through um, additional analysis on uh, wage pressures within the nonprofit sector. We're working through a variety of contracting policy um, improvement areas to try to figure out ways to bolster and support this essential network of providers, while we're also um, identifying areas where we may need to apply a more of an accountability lens, um, either through enhancements to the monitoring program or through other sort of monitoring and oversight practices that we may need to institute. So this is ongoing policy work that's very integrated within the controller's office in our sort of um, our portfolio, and we're working in a few different lanes with it. Um, and uh, the work that is related to capacity building in the monitoring program is available to nonprofits citywide, regardless of who they get funding from, and departments and coordinated with departments that have their own capacity building work. And we work very closely to convene and coordinate departments and nonprofits around all of these efforts um, uh, over time. So these are integrated work streams that are very much joined in our in our um, in our policy work. Thank you, uh, Vice Chair Stefan. Thank you, Chair Preston, and thank you for these excellent questions. Um, when I've been talking to the controller's office, we're definitely talking about the transparency issue in terms of making sure more information is coming to the Board of Supervisors before we're approving these contracts. And um, I just have a few questions, again, around transparency. And if can you go, uh, go over again the factors that contribute to a nonprofit not being in compliance? Or I don't know if you've mentioned them, but what, what are some of the factors that would uh, indicate that a nonprofit is not in compliance? For example, lack of resources to do the job we ask them to do, their infrastructure, financial. Yes. So I think, sorry, we're trying to figure out um, the, um, if this was about monitoring specifically. I think there, in, there's a variety of both in the monitoring program as well as other general citywide requirements um, and standards. I think what we are seeing historically and through our conversations is some of it is simple misses, right? It's just um, gaps. Uh, we saw a lot of impacts during COVID in particular um, due to staffing constraints. So I think that the we, we can't discount that that happened for the city as well um, and just the ability of the city to kind of um, uh, provide a uh, oversight in some of those areas and, and make and some of it's even just reminders. Um, I think we've heard in the past, um, just to get at that point, that the monitor we've heard from nonprofits that the monitoring can be very helpful to them for those kind of reminders. For those ones that are generally understanding the requirements and able to comply, they just need a little bit of a, like uh, a nudge here and there, and, and that can prove helpful. Um, when there are issues that are more structural, um, often it is that, um, as uh, Supervisor Chan was noting earlier, sort of the the smaller organizations, the organizations where there may be, um, you know, having individuals performing multiple roles and maybe roles that they're not, you know, uh, necessarily trained for stepping into leadership roles or CFO roles or um, bookkeeper roles um, without, um, but while also doing other work. I think those kind of staffing um, constraints, um, and that's getting at some of the uh, sustainability work that we're thinking about, the sort of wage pressures and, and sort of are nonprofits able to staff appropriately given um, sort of the 
the, the wage pressures and the funding levels that they're, um, they're receiving and um, other fundraising needs. So that is definitely, I think, a primary concern. I think there is also a lack of um, clarity in some of what the city's requirements might be and whether certain things are contract-based or supplier-based or sort of um, some other city agency. Or um, So I think that there is some confusion potentially there um, about what we actually, what, what someone needs to do at a given time. I think there is work in the, you know, some of our work on contracting streamlining to clarify that, to be a better partner in some of those cases, to, to say what we actually do require and when. Um, and so that's on, that's um, future state. Uh, but I think that that can contribute a little bit as well. Um, and then, um, uh, I think that there are organizations that may, um, you know, have not just that they're small, but they have maybe grown up organically and they're providing a, a, a central role in the community, but may not have the structure yet or um, haven't been able to build the structures um, internally to really um, comply with the, the uh, city rules and requirements, for example. In some cases, we see this resolved through fiscal agency or through certain um, uh, uh, organizations that provide sort of back office support to them. Um, and so there's sort of resolutions there, but we do see some organizations maybe just aren't quite structured or set up um, to, to manage the amount of requirements that we do have for doing business with us. Okay, and, and to follow up on that, uh, one recommendation made was to transition from an annual cost of doing business allocation to a process where uh, multi-year contracts include a plan increase or an embedded escalator um, in subsequent years to ensure that um, our nonprofit contractors actually have stable planned funding. Um, th those funding increases to address inflationary pressures and in contracts, including for wages. And it's always, shocked me that we don't plan for inflation in the contracts and we're doing it on a yearly basis and I'd like yeah can you speak to why we haven't already done that and what would it take to make that make that change thank you yes I, I believe you're quoting our May report um, recommendations um, uh, around that we do see so most of our nonprofit services are delivered in multi-year contracts, either sustained ongoing services that we want to continue. Um, and not always, but some are, most are multi-year contracts. Uh, some are still annual contracts that get renewed year over year, um, which uh, probably should be multi-year contracts. So that's part of this recommendation. Um, and then the city budget uh, process uh, is, uh, sort of assumes and centralizes decision-making about escalation at the mayor and the board um, currently. And so uh, most multi-year contracts with nonprofits are budgeted at a flat rate year over year. So if you have a three-year contract for a million dollars, it's gonna be a million, a million, a million. Um, and each year we may add a cost of doing business escalator to it through the budget process. We have recommended to change that um, to allow departments to say it's a million, a million five, a million ten, whatever that escalation is. We're also recommending um, that this be more of a negotiated approach that, you know, it's not just a flat increase, right? There are things that are different year over year in terms of 
what's what a program growing or a program changing, rents increasing, other things that may change year over year that we, we want to acknowledge and assume um, in the way we, we do business with nonprofits year, for these sustained services. Um, so we have done some work to explore some of these considerations this year out of that um, recommendation, working with departments on some of the operational considerations of what it would look like to do this, to make this change. Um, and we're continuing to vet some, some policy approaches to sort of uh, switch the script a little bit to say that this is more this is done more in the department um, budgeting stage of um, of our annual budget process as opposed to um, sort of leaving decisions about whether to escalate until the end of the budgeting process so we're still working through what that would look like we think that there are some contracting changes that would be um, uh, possible. We really do recommend multi-year contracts. We recommend considering out your costs in your contracts, and we're thinking through how to bring in that budget process um, and kind of tie those things together. Okay, I just have one more area around transparency, and then I want to get to Sherilyn's, um, and I don't want to drag this out too long. Sorry, Chair President. Um, along um, the lines of transparency, what are um, how how are we handling whistleblower complaints against city-funded nonprofits? I was actually shocked to learn after talking, this again is Baker places where, you know, it's the foundation of a lot of the questions that have been raised and um, wanting to do better. Um, I was shocked that I have this one quote, clients described a culture of carelessness and impunity where concerns about violence and drug dealing and drug use inside its facilities um, weren't dealt with, coupled with um, too few case managers again, that can go to the wage issue, um, left them um, struggling to escape the cycle of um, addiction. And, you know, I, we've had people come to the board and actually speak at public comment. I followed up with them, and they told me um, some of the issues that were going on. And the fact that, again, the board didn't know any of them, um, I thought was a problem. And also, you know, with Baker Places, despite it being on red flag status, my understanding is that it's um, now reopening. I, I, um, I think this is in Supervisor Preston's uh, district, but again, it's something that we've heard about, um, the Grove Street House, and that's a contract with MoCD, not DPH. And you know, people ask me questions in that I don't know how to answer other than I'm working on it. Um, you know, when we have Baker Places who we tried to bail out, and then they had to cancel programs that or life-saving programs, and now we're still doling out about $60 million um, to a, a nonprofit that has several complaints against it, against it, has financial issues, and yet we're still, it goes back to, I think, what, what Supervisor Chan was asking, we're, we're still doing business with them, we're still contracting with them, and we're going to deal with this in the legislation in terms of the transparency and what's coming up to the Board of Supervisors. But if you could just touch a little bit on the whistleblower complaint and how that information um, can better get to our level. Thank you for the uh, question, Supervisor Stephanie. Mark De La Rosa, Director of Audits. 
Uh, within CSA, as you know, we do have our controller's whistleblower program. Uh, so we can only speak to uh, complaints and reports that we do field. There are various ways that a whistleblower report can be um, reported to the city. It can be directly to the department. Uh, it can be various means. Uh, in terms of what we do in the controller's office, um, as you know, we, we do follow uh, strict uh, confidentiality laws. So in terms of the details of, of, of certain reports, we cannot divulge publicly. But in terms of the process, we do intake them. Uh, we investigate them. And to, the, to some extent, uh, if, if needed, uh, we do collaborate with the department uh, just to make sure that we do have the full information. Um, and then based on the you know, information that we collect, uh, we then uh, uh, investigate and, and, and con conclude and, and provide um, any corrective action to the department um, as needed. Okay, thank you for that. I think, can we call up Sherilyn? Thank you. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank Welcome. you so much for the opportunity to speak at the hearing. I appreciate it. On behalf of HSN, Sherilyn Adams, uh, co-chair of the HSN, executive director at Larkin Street Youth Services. So I had a number of talking points, but I think based on what I've been listening to and the questions, I'm going to try to just dive into, um, dive into some of the areas that I've heard brought up. You know, first, HSN has been involved in thinking about the contracting process, thinking about streamlining since 2003 with the original Contracting Streamlining Task Force through then-Supervisor Maxwell. I have been involved with HSN since that time. I have spent a ton of my time on contracting streamlining um, because, both, because I feel like, as do all of the members of HSN and all of uh, the organizations that I have, that I consider peer organizations, and all of the organizations that we work with in the city and that do business with the city, we take serious our responsibility around providing high quality services to the vulnerable San Franciscans that we are contracted to serve. And we take um, very seriously our responsibility to be accountable for the funding that we receive from the city, right? It's not our dollars, right? It's the investments from taxpayers and others that support the work that we're doing. I think some of the ways in which when we think about sort of what gets in the way then, what are the challenges that nonprofits face or what happens in contracting with the city that, um, makes it, that makes it seem like or that we are not always successful in that. I think nonprofits by and large are successful in the implementation of services and that we are accountable for the dollars. Contracting with the city is complicated and challenging. When we are talking about streamlining the process, what we are talking about is that on the program monitoring side or on doing business with individual departments is there is very little, there's very little consistency as you heard talked about, right? Every single department has their own process for how they contract, procurement, negotiation, invoicing, contract development, how we report our contract, you know, our deliverables, what portals we use, all of that is different. So as a nonprofit, you're trying to comply, you're trying to make sure that you're doing all of that while you're providing services. As was just mentioned, most of our contracts are flat funded, except in years when there's been a cost of doing business either allocated by the mayor in the budget process and or by the board of supervisors. So that's not been every year. Some years that's been 
Sometimes it's been consistent. We've had some really good years, like last year, when there was um, both wage issues addressed with and a solid cost of doing business and a combination of what the mayor did and what the board did. Flat funding um, and inadequate indirect rates and inadequate funding to support the compliance side of the organization. That is meaning that we have adequate financial staff. We have adequate staff to be able to do reporting. We have the ability when we're, I had 28 program monitoring visits in the fall, 28. Because I have 28 contracts with the city. When I have contract, with, you know, if there are, if we, you know, those, there is follow up with those. If we are not doing, if there's something we need to be doing better, we partner with the city, we have a corrective or a, a response that we then need to adhere to, right? There are processes, but there is not continuity, consistency, and a systemic approach to how we are doing the monitorings of nonprofits or the services that we're delivering. So it doesn't mean they're not being delivered well. It doesn't mean we're not, as a, on a whole, most of us, executing well on the contracts that we receive. The visibility and the transparency is by program, not by either organization or not by kind of service delivery intervention because it's department by department. The citywide fiscal and compliance monitoring that was implemented in 2005, I think has been super helpful. And while it can always be improved, it has been, it's a great model for a process that I think if we could think of ways to be able to do that on the program side, it's much more complicated, but if there could be consistent standards or templates or approaches that may help to ensure that there's better information going to the city and there's a, you know, increased transparency amongst and between departments as well as, um, you know, other, other entities that are interested in this information. Um, I, have, I could talk about this for hours. I really, I could. Um, so, but I think I might pause to see if there's uh, specific questions that I can address um, from, from all of you. Thank you. Um, can I just ask you to break down that? You had 28. Like, it, how many different departments was that? Oh, uh, well, we, department, we contract Mark. with almost every department in the city, so I, I think that's probably, <laughs> like, you know, Larkin Street's kind of, I mean, that's, I don't think we're all that uncommon with having multiple departments. So there's depart, every department, just, uh, we have, for every contract we have, and we might have multiple contracts with a single department, there is a site visit, you know, occasionally there's a desk visit, but often there's a site visit. Uh so there, that's in an intention to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be no, doing. No, I understand. I'm just, right. I, I understand why a different department yeah. might need to come out separately. Make, it's, it's, right. I'm, I'm stunned to learn that if you have like five contracts with the same department, that they mm -hmm. don't internally coordinate and do one site visit. Yeah. But you're saying that's... And like, the, yeah, that, that's true. And I just, the, the thing I forgot to mention, you know, is, is, or not, I just really want to highlight that I can't underscore enough the importance of the cost of doing business, of having the ability to, because for those program visits, for all of that, that is staff time across multiple sort of internal departments to ensure that we're prepared, prepped, that we have the data, that we have all of the things, right? And that is true across all organizations. And if you are smaller or newer or grow rapidly, 
it's very hard to have that kind of backbone support that you need consistently to be in compliance across fiscal and your fiscal and compliance monitoring as well as your various uh, contract and program requirements. Just as a quick follow-up, is, is it different in private sector funding? In other words, if you have a foundation that gives you three grants, do they communicate with each other and send one person out for a site visit for all three grants or do you have the same dynamic? In general, for the, the, the major differences between how the, in the private funding world, when we have a foundation grant, or contract, agreements are made up front about what the require, you know, exactly what's going to be, you know, the outcomes are going to be, the intent of the funding, and what we are going to, you know, the budget, all of that. And then there is, in general, one, one visit. Uh, maybe there's more more reporting, but yes, there tends to be a more consolidated approach. And there's a, uh, we do agreements on the front end about outcomes reporting in in a uh, in a slightly different way. Thank you. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you. I just wanted to thank you so much. And uh, I don't have any questions because we've been meeting about this and everything you've said. Um, you've, you've told me in meetings before. But I, I just want to reassure you that we're going to continue to work on um, those issues that you brought up in terms of the um, continuity and consistency and having to um, report to so many different departments and really do um, on the program level what we've done on the fiscal level and meeting with the con controller's office I feel like we're making headway I know in the last meeting we had we talked about what a huge undertaking this is but um, certainly no reason not to take you know take measures to make sure that we figure this out so um, thank you for being a willing partner and working with us and we're going to continue to have um, conversations with HSN and any nonprofit that wants to speak to us about this. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie, um, and uh, echoing the thanks to you for all uh, for your your work. I also do want to recognize our uh, our controller Ben Rosenfield has joined us. Thanks to you and your your team for uh, for all your work uh, on this and meeting with all of our offices. And um, I don't think any of us have a uh, auditor type uh, or financial background of that. Uh, depth so we've learned we, we learn a lot from you so thank you um, and and uh, I, I I will just say on the issue of I, I'm glad to hear that there seems to be some progress around the building in more of the cost of business increases the escalator we've, we've done better in the last year than some years it's just I, I will say since taking office is just like every year that is a top seems to be a top demand of every nonprofit trying to navigate city contracting and we really do need a bet to, to not have that be like a budget battle late in the process every year because it's a big ticket item you know and it just is the costs are going up right the the costs of um whether it's salaries rent all that right that stuff doesn't go down you know food and, and you know any services supplies um, and to not build in, to, to, to not have it be more standard that that's built in, I, I think is really a problem. So I appreciate the, the, the discussion on that and really elevating that. It looks like you might want to add something before we Yeah, I mean, I comment. think the other thing that having, I mean, we, the, the ability for a multi-year contra, multi yeah. contracts to have escalators is also the ability for the city to understand the true costs right. of the services that it's purchasing, right? So right now, uh, the city knows what it, what they're contracting for, 
but they may, that may or may not be reflective of the cost that the service is to provide. And I think the more we can align that and understand what it is that we are purchasing, the kinds of services, then we have a better understanding of what it costs and then we can look at outcomes and we can look at what we're achieving and understand then how to make decisions on expansion, sustainability, growth, um, changes that we wanna to make to address the issues. Thank you. Um, seeing no other questions or comments, let's open it up for uh, public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up along the right, the curtain wall. Please. For those on remote public call-in, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to hold until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. The time has been set for two minutes, and for those in the chamber, there is a countdown display on the podium. Thank you. You may begin your comments. <clears throat> Hello. Uh, my name is Michael Blacker. I'm the director of Swords of Plowshares, and uh, <clears throat> I just want to echo uh, that incredible testimony that... Um, was just given, you know, because she really covers all those challenges. <clears throat> and, and, and for swords, you know, like so many others, you know, we're like, how do you like balance, you know, performance doing the services? Because it's, you know, 24 seven, if you have housing or if you have a community or, or a drop-in program with accountability, right? And transparency. And so how do you measure, how do you preserve paperwork versus performance? I think that's our challenge. Cause all of us are really like pulling our hair out, just trying to like, stay on top of our work, our responsibilities. At SWORDS, our mission is, you know, serving veterans. And we have, start, you know, we're starting a rent-up process in, in Treasure Island for 104 formerly homeless veterans. We have drop-in programs. We're uh, trying to take care of veterans who are uh, prone for suicides, who are seniors, who have complex issues, who are depressed, who have lots of other issues. So, but how do you balance that with all the the resources you need to do the work, right? Because you really have to have the staff to do the work. And so how do you allocate that? How do you get all the contracts? Because SWORDS, uh, like others, have multiple contracts. We work with the Department of Public Health. We work with the new Homeless Supportive Housing Project. We knew with the senior program, with the workforce development. You know, all those are part of the mix of providing care. So how do you balance all those contracts? That's just at the city level. You also have state contracts and federal contracts, et cetera. But I think we're all in support of that effort. So the issue is how do you balance it out without burning out your, you know, how do you like protect your people who are client facing staff, right? And do the work. So thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Good morning, Super. Good morning, Supervisors. My name is David Linnell and I'm the acting CEO for Meals on Wheels. I want to start off by thanking you for the uh, addendum that you did for our, our budget yesterday and increasing the funding through to the Disability and Aging Services Department. Um, oh, thank you for that increase. Uh, however, it doesn't meet the, the um, funding that we actually need because we fundraise about 56% of our overall cost. So that increase yesterday made up about eight and a half percent of our 22% increase that we're seeing across the board for food, um, packaging material, and fuel. <clears throat> but we accept the responsibility of that fundraise, even though it's difficult for us to continue on that path of fundraising nearly $8 million a year. <clears throat> it's hard. Um, and the fundraising is shifting as we come out of COVID. So that, that those increased dollars that we have to fundraise is even more difficult in this environment. To give you an example, we had one of our, <clears throat> our uh, foundations uh, 
uh, that gives us uh, $500,000 a year has decided to give it to the entire state to fund uh, senior feeding, which is fine. It's going to go to the same location, but now we've got to make up that deficit. I bring that up because <clears throat> when there's bad press that's happening about uh, nonprofits that goes out to the public, they don't know how to digest it all. So they become skittish about wanting to give their additional dollars outside their tax dollars to organizations like ourselves to make up those, those demands. Um, I think this, this dialogue is an excellent dialogue to have. I think that accountability and transparency is incredibly important. Um, we believe, personally, as an agency, that we have the right mix of, of accountability and transparency. Um, the, the Department of... Um, Disability and Aging Services is made up of a bunch of dietitians. They're all registered dietitians. And if you've ever met a registered dietitian, they're incredible. I apologize Thank for interrupting, you. Chair. Your time has left. You get two minutes. Everyone's two minutes. Thank today. you. Next, next speaker, please. Thank you. Good morning, Supervisors. Beverly Upton, San Francisco Domestic Violence Consortium, representing 17 members doing direct services for domestic violence in San Francisco, crisis lines, shelters, legal services, and the beloved community. Um, we're honored to contract with the city, um, and we're happy to see this um, efforts towards transparency. And we want to also thank our controller for the guidance because when we saw it in the San Francisco Standard at 6.45 in the morning, we got on it. We wanted to see who was out of compliance and how could we help. Most of our agencies actually were in compliance and they just found out that there was a backlog at the AG's office. But of course we were all so worried because this is a sector that is serving the city 24 hours a day doing life-saving life services that does not want to be out of compliance. Also, I think what Cheryl Lynn said about the true cost of delivering these services, most of our agencies leverage city dollars at least four to one. So they are going out, just as this gentleman um, addressed a little bit, going out and leveraging private dollars and donor dollars to provide services in the city. Most of our agencies, we see about a four to one, and we have one agency in the domestic violence community that um, talks about um, leveraging city dollars seven to one. So it's a very good investment for the city. So we stand ready to work with you. We believe in transparency. We think it's helpful. Uh, so we just want to be a part of the conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Next speaker, please. Good morning. Debbie Lerman, San Francisco Human Services Network. I want to thank the controller's team for these reports and Supervisor Stephanie for calling this hearing. For decades, hundreds of community-based organizations have labored to address San Francisco's most pressing needs, particularly in communities of color. These needs have deepened because of COVID, the economy, inequality, and persistent resource gaps in our systems of care. We have seen recent media coverage of a couple of nonprofits that have struggled to fulfill contractual obligations, and that has renewed the call for more accountability. HSN fully embraces accountability, transparency, and oversight. We do not and will not excuse misuse of public funds. We welcome positive critique 
and public scrutiny as a catalyst for constructive dialogue and improved performance. The public deserves our best. However, HSN members will not abandon friends and colleagues, nor the communities they represent in their time of need. And we fully express support for those organizations that need resources, assistance, and capacity. Likewise, we call on the city to support our sector and particularly when a, valid when a valued community partner faces challenges, hold yourselves accountable by helping to stabilize and improve the organization and preserve the services it provides. Criticism is easy. Join us in extending a helping hand to fix the problems. We invite stakeholders, including the media, to join us in a unified effort to reinvest in our city's CBOs, our services, are indispensable parts of economic recovery in every neighborhood, and supporting our services also supports thousands of nonprofit workers that carried us through COVID. Join with us as we work together to build a better San Francisco. I apologize for, for all. the interruption. Each speaker is being given two minutes. Thank today. you. And a reminder to everyone uh, two minutes for public comment. We cut you off, everyone equally. We are required to, but you can always. Uh, email the committee or email the board if you don't get to your full remarks and the clerk will remind you where to send your email uh, after public comment. Hi everyone, um, just thank you supervisors for giving me the opportunity to speak. My name is Laura Lala Chavez, I'm the executive director at Lyric, LGBTQ youth organization in San Francisco. I just want to echo everything that my colleagues have said. I don't think it's a, a secret that many of us are doing the best that we possibly can we have that lived experience. We understand our communities and what they need. And our sole focus is in providing that service and doing it in the best way possible. Um, and so we are thoughtful partners. We are excited to partner with the city. And so I just want to speak a little bit to the challenges of that. Um, 28 visits is very, very common. I mean, I'm experiencing the same thing and many of our other colleagues are experiencing the same thing. I have staff, well, we're trying to provide that service and that quality of care and we're having to pivot and constantly communicate to all of our different departments about deliverables, about um, all of the different standards. And so it's, it, it becomes really difficult for us to manage that standard of care and be able to constantly abide by all the non-streamlined services across the city and across city departments. And so I'm strongly supportive of improving this monitoring process. Um, and thank you, thank you all for the time. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public in the chamber that would like to make comment on this item? If not, we will go to the call-in line. We currently have eight members listening and five in the queue. May we please have the first speaker? Good afternoon, Chair Preston and committee members. Wes Saver, Senior Policy Manager for Glide, also with HESPA and the Domestic Violence Consortium. I'd like to echo everything that was shared by Sherilyn Adams and my community-based colleagues. Thank you all. Uh, Glide shares the concerns expressed by the supervisors and supports accountability for nonprofits receiving city funding. Really grateful to Supervisor Stephanie for calling this hearing. We want to ensure a collaborative process and also that city departments too are accountable in their dealings with nonprofit partners. Nonprofits are already subject to extensive reporting, site visits and audits as you've heard today and the vast majority of these organizations are in full compliance with requirements. When nonprofits are non-compliant, 
It's often the result of chronic and long-term underfunding city contracts, inconsistencies across city systems, as well as delays in payment dispersal. Sometimes these delays are close to a year, and organizations are still expected to meet grant deliverables without receiving the actual funding, and that poses severe challenges. And some underfunding, too, is partly due to a lack of understanding of the true cost of services and having unrealistic expectations about nonprofits' ability to sustain adequate funding from other sources. And that was touched on by some of my colleagues already. Underfunding contributes to non-competitive wages that have led to recruiting and retention challenges. Uh, some folks from the city presented on that already. And although the current monitoring process proves that most nonprofits are compliant, we do have some concerns about aspects of the process. And those include many reporting requirements and monitoring activities are duplicative. Uh, the city lacks a centralized reporting system that would allow departments to share data and Program monitoring results should be used to connect CBOs to capacity building investments and technical assistance. So we hope this is the beginning of a collaborative process to improve nonprofit oversight and monitoring. And uh, we really feel that an effective system really ultimately helped to increase support for these vital services to San Francisco's most marginalized communities. So thank you for, for all the, the great conversation today. And we, we look forward to uh, helping improve the system going forward. Thank, thank you. you for your comments. Thank you for your comments, Wesley Saber. Next caller, please. So, come in, uh, the Board of Supervisors, uh, there are 134 nonprofits that are not in compliance right now. And what you've heard from the controller's office is that, you know, they, they deal with the departments. You can be a nonprofit in good standing and go to the departments or go to, say, the Arts Commission, and they will tell you to partner with uh, somebody else. And that's where the corruption starts. All our city departments have favorite people, the inner circle that they give, the grants, or the contracts too. So the controller's office, uh, you asked about a whistleblower. What incentive has the controller's office given to a single whistleblower? Nothing. You can give, you can give them all the information on a platter, they take it and give it to the city attorney. And we know what happened to the SFPUC. The city attorney became the general manager of the SFPUC, now making $500,000. That is how our city works. This is a very corrupt city. Corrupt. 98% of the nonprofits have somebody that they know that benefits from what is given to them. I know this because I am in compliance. I'm also a nonprofit enterprise, and I'm monitoring this nonsense for the last 20 years. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments, Mr. DaCosta. May we please have the next caller? Good morning, Supervisors. This is Marie Harabiel calling in. I uh, represent an organization in the Richmond District called SOAR, and um, we are ex 
extremely gratified and um, appreciative of Catherine, Stephanie, excuse me, Supervisor Stephanie, uh, calling this hearing. The conversation has been um, enlightening, and I hope it provides some uh, basis for moving forward and making some changes. Um, so very, very appreciative for all of you supervisors for um, listening today and all of the speakers. Um, we at SOAR are actually hosting a five-part series on where does all the money go. So um, several of our people uh, have been listening today because this is extremely helpful in our understanding. Um, and if anyone uh, is on the line and wants to attend the next part in our series, it's on February 27th. And if you go to soar-d1.com, S-O-A-R-D1.com, you can find out the information there. And um, otherwise, just thank you so much. This is really, really great. And I, I do tend to agree with some of the comments from the prior caller that there is a lot of corruption in this city. And I think it's about time we root it out. So I, I really hope that this is one of the steps on the path to doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much for your callers today. May I please have the next caller? Good afternoon, uh, Supervisors. Uh, I'm Doug Stiles, the Executive Director of Huckleberry Youth Programs, also one of the founding members of HSN. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having this conversation and for the opportunity to continue the partnership and services in San Francisco. Um, just a couple comments. Uh, agree with my peers that have made some of these comments as well. Contracting with multiple departments with different requirements is confusing. Uh, it's, it's complex and it often distracts from the services that we're trying to provide with people in the community. Um, we sometimes receive late certifications uh, or contracts and have to float those funds. I think this was also mentioned earlier. And this isn't a small amount, sometimes to the tune of several hundred thousand dollars. Uh, so it's a difficult process partnering with the city around uh, contracts and very happy that we're looking at how we can improve this across the board. We are audited by multiple entities, not just the city, as, as Sherilyn was mentioned, but um, several other <clears throat> organizations, uh, other funders. Um, we have an independent audit as well every year. and We are in full compliance. And when there's challenges, um, we work with the, uh, the organization that's looking at us to say, how can we improve? Because we're always looking to improve and be a stronger organization going forward. And just finally, I want to say, uh, you know, the multi-year contracts and planning would really solve a lot of these challenges and the headaches that we're talking about. So we are in full support of the controller's recommendation to standardize and streamline and improve the monitoring process going forward. And thank you again for uh, bringing this uh, to a, a broader audience, and hopefully we can streamline some of these processes moving forward. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today, Doug Stiles. May we please have the next caller? Hi, um, my name is Jessica. I am calling from the District for Youth and Families Network, which is a coalition of nonprofits, community-based nonprofits in District 4, partnering with over 15 uh, youth and family-serving nonprofits um, in the sunset. Uh, and then I also want to just echo a lot of points that were made. Um, thank you, everyone, for the opportunity to speak. So as a large number of nonprofits provide essential services to the communities they serve, it is important to ensure that the monitoring process is effective, efficient, and fair. However, the negative narrative that has emerged in response to recent publicity regarding a small number of non-compliant organizations can be damaging and misleading. 
We acknowledge the need for accountability, but we also request that the conversation acknowledges the impact of underfunded contracts and wages, as well as the level of oversight that already exists and the contributions of the nonprofit sector. Our concerns with current monitoring processes include inconsistencies across departments, overly ambitious performance measures, duplicative reporting requirements and monitoring activities, a lot of these were already mentioned, um, some unnecessary evaluation requirements and lack of centralized reporting systems. Furthermore, we suggest that the fiscal, the fiscal and compliance monitoring should focus on the CBO's overall health and compliance. With program monitoring results used to connect CBOs to capacity building investments and technical assistance, uh, the controller's report provides an opportunity to standardize, streamline, and improve the monitoring process in collaboration with, between the city and CBOs. So we urge the city to consider the nuances in the bureaucratic processes and be thoughtful of how implementation hinders nonprofits' ability to provide quality services to their communities. We also request that the conversation surrounding nonprofit accountability takes into account the challenges that come from chronic and long-term underfunding from the city contract contracting issues, unrealistic expectations, and recruitment and retention challenges. Um, and then in conclusion, uh, while we support accountability for nonprofits receiving city funding, we also call for a Thank fair you so and much for your comments today, Jessica, I apologize for the interruption. Thank you so much for your comments. Are there any other callers on the line? We have one more caller. Can you please forward the caller? May we please have the next caller? Hello. Hello. Please proceed. Can you hear me? Yes, please proceed. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to say that I was calling in. My name is Elani, and I'm a San Franciscan. And I think that many of us throughout San Francisco were just worried because we understand a lot of money is being funneled through nonprofits, but we just see the we just don't see enough change to understand what's going on. And so I'm glad you all have this hearing today. Um, also from community members, family members, the issue is oh, they feel like there's all these nonprofits and we don't know what all of them do or where we can find them. Or the fact that when we do reach out, they only are open on certain days for a couple hours and don't answer their phones consistently throughout the day. So when the public is calling in and trying to reach out to get services or to be engaged, there are barriers. So this, all of this flew into, well, what are you all doing with the money? And so I know that some of the nonprofits are 24 hours, some have limited, but really even before COVID, they weren't, some weren't answering their phones or you would have to go all the way down to the shop of market to get services. And I just don't understand why there's not little hubs in each um, district, each 11 districts, um, whether it's once or a couple times a month. Um, and I'm sure other San Franciscans would love to have called in today to just say that we just want to understand what's going on with how money is funneled, how what your um, response is to helping people, and um, to make sure people get help because. Whenever you talk to people in need, they say they never get it. They never get a follow back. And so it's just, it's confusing as to what's going on. Thank you. That's it. Thank you so much for your comments today, Alani. We're just checking to see if there's anyone else. 
And again, apologies to anyone that I needed to cut off today. We are limiting public comment to two minutes. For those that have public comment they would like to submit via email, please email them to me at stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot Cabrera, C-A-B-R-E-R-A at sfgov.org. Thank you. There are no other callers, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I did want to just to the, the last uh, public comment, uh, well, let me thank everyone who, who called in, um, all the, both the nonprofit representatives as well as all the members of the public. Um, I do think on this issue around public access and knowledge to the services, I, I do wanna highlight that before uh, turning over to my colleagues for any, for any concluding remarks or questions. Um, I, think it is a, I think it's a really big issue um, and I hope as uh, part of these discussions there's so many aspects to what we're discussing but but I think that um, that that there is a serious issue with the public not really being able to get access to who is doing what and uh, you know we've had this conversation in other contexts where there's been suggestions around dashboards and and um, I will say to the members of the public who have these concerns. It's not just you. Like, I've, I've been in office for three years. I cannot tell you uh, how many times coming from being outside City Hall, inside City Hall, and just trying to get a basic answer to, please provide us all the violence prevention services in this area of our district. You would think that is all living somewhere. Uh, as our controller can tell you, because we've bugged him over and over, on, on these kind of issues. It's not that simple, right? There is a list of the contracts out there, but uh, the controller's office has to go to each department that's overseeing these grants to try to dig in and tell even a supervisor's office, here are the services being provided. Now, some organizations individually do this very well on their own websites. They talk about what services they're providing, what hours they're open, where people go. Um, but I, we really, both for supervisors and, and you know, for elected officials and city leaders, and certainly for members of the public, we've got to do a better job as a city of in one place, you should just be able to click on the service you're looking for or the nonprofit you're curious about. And I think it's part of the reason that people, that some folks are so critical of the expenses is because they, as that last caller said, they don't know where it goes. And sometimes it's not, and most of the time, it's not that there isn't good work being done. It's that the public has no idea if there is good work being done or not and where the gaps are. And so I, I will say in, in our experience, especially around certain, you know, um, food insecurity issues, violence prevention, other things where we've wanted to step in and fill gaps that we know exist. Figuring out what the gaps are is hard when you don't even have a, a, a comprehensive look at what we're currently funding, what times a day people can get service, what service they can get. Uh, so uh, I will be happy to work with uh, colleagues and, and uh, the controller's office and anyone on what we can do to have uh, better transparency um, and really coordination of all that information in one place, because I think it's crucial. Um, so I, I will leave it at that, and uh, so, uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. 
Thank you, Chair Preston. I am so glad we've had this hearing because everything that I've been talking about with um, Ben and Natasha and the city attorney's office came up here, especially the dashboard when you said that. Definitely, that I mean, you and I are thinking exactly the same on this. So, um, you know, transparency is a huge part of it, not just um, for the public, but for us. I agree with that to get a better understanding of the services we need, the services um, that are out there. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to work on this legislation and can't thank my colleagues enough for their input and thank again the controller's office for your presentations today and for your continued work into the nonprofits. Um, thank you, Sherilyn, for your comments and all those who called in. And I do want to reiterate, you know, based on what um, the gentleman from Meals on Wheels said, there are a lot of nonprofits out there doing incredible work, and we are incredibly lucky to have them in our city and, you know, serving um, people that are in critical need of those services. So I just want to reiterate that, yes, there's been some bad press around some nonprofits that have could have maybe done better or could have used more help from the city. And again, this is a two-way street. This is um, the city making sure that we have um, processes in place that actually are benefiting um, everyone involved. So I want to, um, again, thank everyone. Um, I don't know if you have any comments, Supervisor Chan, but I, I would move to file this hearing. Um, we will be discussing this again once I introduce the legislation, so no need to uh, keep this hearing open. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Uh, on the motion to file uh, this hearing, please call the roll. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, I. Member Chan. Chan, I. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I. There are three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Thank you again, everyone, for your participation in the hearing. Uh, and thank you again, uh, Vice Chair Stephanie, for your leadership on this. Looking forward to the, to the legislation in the next chapter uh, on this. Um, why don't we, uh, Madam Clerk, please call the uh, closed session items 2 through 8 together. Thank you. Today's litigation agenda is comprised of items 2 through 8 which include, pardon, today's closed session agenda is comprised of items two through eight, which includes various ordinances and resolutions regarding settlements for lawsuits and unlitigated claims. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on items two through eight should call 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter meeting ID 2499-452-1258, then press pound twice. Those in chamber should line up along the curtain wall. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to be added to the queue. When the system prompts you have been unmuted, you may begin your comments. Is there any member of the public in the chamber that would like to make public comment on items two through eight? Seeing none in the chamber, we'll go to the call line. There are currently zero callers in the queue. Thank you. Uh, public comment on the, this, these items uh, is now closed. Um, and um, on the motion to convene in closed session, Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Vice Chair Stephanie? Absent. Member Chan? Chan, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are two ayes with one member absent. Thank you. The motion passes and we'll now convene in closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
We're now back in open session. Thank you for your patience while we were away. Madam Clerk, uh, please report on the closed session deliberations. In closed session, the committee recommended items two through eight to the full board with a positive recommendation. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I'd like to move to not disclose the closed session discussions. Please call the roll on that motion. Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie I. Member Chan. Chan I, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Or sorry, Chair Preston. Preston I. Thank you. There are three eyes. Thank you. That motion passes. Uh, any further business before the committee? There's no further business. Thank you very much. We are adjourned. Thank you.